Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at the bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Reed Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. Today, I'm delighted to welcome back Elaine Shea Chow. I say welcome back because as well as being the author of Disorientation, one of the most talked about debut novels of recent years, Elaine is also a former Shakespeare and Company bookseller. So I hope this interview, despite being recorded remotely, also feels like something of a homecoming. Disorientation is a campus novel retooled for the 21st century, by which I mean that alongside the wry satirical take it offers on life under the academic bell jar, it also rushes headfirst into some of the most fractious debates that are currently animating universities in America and across the world. Debates such as, how can historic and systemic injustices in further education be unpicked? What are the limits, if any, to freedom of expression? What do we mean by safe spaces and who are they safe for exactly? And why are these young people taking so much prescription medication? It also paints a nuanced and sensitive portrait of the specific obstacles and prejudices faced by Asian Americans as they work to gain a foothold on the academic ladder. And if that weren't enough, disorientation also has a fast-paced corkscrew of a plot that keeps the reader constantly guessing about both the heights it will reach and the depths to which it will plunge. Elaine Shechow, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you so much, Adam. I'm so happy to be here and see you again. And like you said, to have this homecoming with a place that meant so much to me. Oh, well, I hope we can do it in the uh, the physical world sometime in the not too, uh, too distant future. Um, yes. Now, I'm going to jump in with the most important, most serious question first. Um, a couple of moments in the book, you make reference to a cat called Agatha. Now... <laughs> Attentive listeners may know that at the bookstore, we also have a grumpy little tabby called Agatha. So before we dive into the plot and the characters and the issues raised in the book, I want to know, was this a conscious or unconscious tribute to our little Moggy? It was absolutely a conscious tribute to (laughs) Aggie, who I love so much. And she made every day at the bookstore just even brighter, seeing her grumpy little sticky face. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, that was my little homage to her. I'm so glad you picked up on that. I thought it would be too on the nose if I called her Aggie, so I called her Uh Agatha. On September 9th, Ingrid Yang could be found cramped over a desk, left foot asleep, right hand swollen. She had Xiao and Chow on the mind, so much so she felt his illusions and alliterations leaking from her every orifice and puddling beneath her. She was sucking on the ends of her hair, then sniffing the damp locks before picking at the eczema patches on her ankles. Her aching eyes were marbled pink from a sleepless night, punctuated by unnecessary trips to the bathroom. She simply idled on the toilet with her eyes closed, nothing going out of or into her body. Even on the rare occasions sleep visited, Ingrid was plagued by a constant pinching pain in her stomach, 
Sometimes she imagined, hopefully, that she was developing ulcers. No one could fault her for failing her dissertation because of stomach ulcers, could they? Pneumonia then? What about mono? But how to contract these illnesses was another question entirely. The black market was the obvious choice, but then again, so was an undergrad frat party. Pulling her laptop close, she searched fastest way to contract mono, followed by top 10 deathly illnesses. No, Ingrid Yang was not doing well. She was 29 years old and in mounting debt from her undergraduate degree. Four years ago, she had passed her comprehensive exams and started her dissertation. This year, the eighth and final year of her PhD, her funding would run out. An unhappy situation in any circumstance, but compounded by the expiration of her student loan deferral. Somehow, in spite of all this financial doom and gloom, this was also the year she had to produce 250 pages on Shaolin Chow. And not just any 250 pages, they had to be shockingly original and convincing, enough to pass muster with her exacting advisor and an even more exacting dissertation committee, enough to secure her the prestigious postdoc fellowship established in Shaolin Chow's name. But after hundreds of hair-pulling hours spent at the archive, all she had accomplished was 50 pages of scrambled notes on Chow's use of enjambment, plus an addiction to antacids. Make no mistake, it wasn't like she hadn't tried. She had come up with ideas of her own, the eternal inner conflict between Eastern selflessness and Western individuality in Chow's poetry, the immigrant's assimilation into American society as endless negotiation in Chow's poetry, Chow's poetry and the impossibility of cultural translation, Chow's poetry and the longing for irretrievably lost motherland and mother tongue, etc., the problem was some other scholar had, of course, snatched up the idea first. No other Chinese-American poet had been so widely read in America, had been so consistently reprinted year after year. The so-called Chinese Robert Frost was taught to students in high schools and colleges all across the country and occasionally in gifted middle school classes. In every bookstore and library, a good 12 inches of space was reserved for his prolific work. Even those who wanted nothing to do with literature, who couldn't tell you Chow's name, much less how to spell it, had bumped into his poems. In dentist offices, middle-class homes, and ethnic restaurants, his quotations adorned boxes of tea, wall decorations, and watercolor calendars. Xiao and Chow was beloved, more so after he passed away from pancreatic cancer seven years ago. What could Ingrid possibly offer on the late canonical poet that no one else had? She had memorized Chow's poems backwards and forwards, rifled through innumerable archive boxes, worn out her copy of his biography, read incomprehensible secondary sources, read them a third time. She had even attended a pricey international conference in New York in the hopes of gently plagiarizing some Argentinian or Swedish scholar's paper. When she was still a TA, she had surreptitiously assigned her undergrad's essay prompts that fed directly into her own research. She had let her other interests fall to the wayside, not to mention healthy eating and exercise. She had postponed her wedding for another year. From the moment she woke up to the moment she pretended to sleep, Chowian sonnets, villanelles, odes, and elegies consumed her. What more could she do? Hire a ghostwriter? Alas, Ingrid was approaching the problem as though it held a logical solution, but her dissertation woes were preordained from the start. She had never wanted to research Chow in the first place. Okay, so let's uh, let's start with um, with Ingrid Yang. Okay, so our uh, our protagonist, and very early on, 
in the book, you write that Ingrid Yang was not doing well. Okay. And there's several reasons, which I think we're going to come in to unpick about why (laughs) exactly uh, Ingrid is not doing well. But um, I'm going to ask you to maybe just introduce Ingrid a little bit to our listeners. And I'm going to ask you to do this for two reasons. Firstly, because I think it will be really nice for um, for our readers to get a sense of who you think Ingrid Yang is. But also, and I'll find myself doing this several times in our conversation, I think, there's so much in the plot of disorientation, which I'd like to talk about, but I also don't want to reveal (laughs) that I think at moments I'm going to ask you to sort of give as much as you're comfortable with giving so as not to spoil things for for listeners who haven't read the book. So so tell us a little bit about Ingrid Yang and why why she's not doing well. Yeah, Ingrid Yang is a 29-year-old PhD student at a fictional American University in Massachusetts, Barnes University, and uh, she's Taiwanese-American. She's been engaged to uh, a Japanese-to-English translator named Stephen Green, and the reason she's not doing well when we meet her is she's in her eighth year of a PhD program. So that is quite long. And, it feels long. <laughs> yeah. And the reason it's taken her so long to, to finish her dissertation is she never wanted to write this dissertation to begin with. It's mm-hmm. on a famous, also fictional poet named Xiaowen Chao. And he's he's sort of like a Robert Frost, if you will. Mm -hmm. And she feels everything that you could possibly say about him has already been said. And on top of that, she just has no interest in his poetry. So we learn a little bit about why she sort of became coerced into researching him. Um, But yeah, this is why she's just sort of drowning in this feeling of what am I going to do? I'm going to lose my funding if I don't finish the dissertation. I haven't been able to plan this wedding that I really want to plan because this dissertation is just sucking up my whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, when we meet her, she's also, I'll say, in a sort of status quo Mm -hmm. um, phase of her life. She's not questioning of the systems around her or um, even really her relationships and uh, herself. You know, she tends to just uh, not think too hard about certain things when we meet her. Mm-hmm. And so just um, on her dissertation, first of all, so um, you said she's been doing it for eight years. Uh, because we have listeners um, kind of all around the world, I know from a UK perspective, like generally people get three or four years to uh, to, to complete a PhD. Mm. So when we hear eight years, I mean, is that is that already quite exceptional by by American standards? Yeah, I mean, the eight years includes three to four years uh, of just the exams portion. So the American PhD includes these comprehensive exams. So for three to four years, I believe you are intensely preparing, you're taking a lot of classes, um, and, and then you only begin the dissertation after the comprehensive exams are over. So I think most PhD programs in the U.S., they want you to finish in five to six years total. Mm-hmm. Okay. So eight is on the longer side. I've yeah. <laughs> heard some people kind of going up to 10, uh, but yeah, that's very rare. <laughs> and so one thing I never really considered, because I, I haven't done a PhD myself, um, but I found really fascinating was the way she starts thinking about this um 
this PhD and her relationship with this poet. So at one moment you write that she dedicated years of her life to obsessing over somebody who had, hadn't even known she existed. And she has described it as a kind of a pathetic one-sided relationship. And I was fascinated by that because that's not something I'd ever really considered might be a sort of response. I kind of assumed sort of academics were so into their subject that the fact that those subjects never or rarely gave back or kind of acknowledged mm. the the work and the interest wouldn't really matter. But having seen it sort of uh, expressed in kind of Ingrid's voice there, suddenly that sense of, yeah, that must actually, that must take its psychological toll on you in some way. Yeah, I, that was pulled from, directly pulled from a, a moment I had when I was doing my uh, PhD at uh, Paris 3 mm -hmm. on modernist um, fiction writers, American and British. And, you know, I was spending so much time at the the BNF, mm -hmm. you know, in the, their basement archives. And <laughs> this feeling of my youth was, you know, just I was losing my youth as I was reading about um, these dead authors who I started to have these strange thoughts about what what would, you know, Virginia Woolf say to me if we mm. met in real life? I know it's it's so illogical. Something but, quite withering, I imagine. <laughs> um, it, I, I guess there was this feeling of, you know, I don't know how if I had lived in the same time as them, how would I have been treated by them? Mm. Um, and I'll never know. Right. But right. I think I did start to feel this strange one-sided feeling of I was devoting so much of myself, uh, picking through often their most intimate, you know, their, their letters, their diary mm -hmm. entries. And I felt I was learning so much about them. And, and so that feeling of how would they have treated me began to sort of bother me that you know, if that because back in the 20s, um, racism was as strong as ever, if not worse. Mm. Right. And so I just had that that feeling sort of needle at me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that's and that's that's another thing that sort of um, we, we find sort of early on with with Ingrid as well is that we sort of there's this sense of, OK, there's her personal connection or lack of personal connection, as you said, to to this poet and the fact that she's not really super interested in her in in in, in his work and fi found herself kind of coerced into into doing this PhD, and on top of that, there's the whole kind of the the system, I guess, of academia surrounding um, surrounding her work. So even if she had been sort of super interested in Zhao Wenqiao, it would there was still there's still so much going on in the way that supervisors act towards their supervisees and the way that departments are maybe in competition with each other and things like that that mm -hmm. that seem uh from from the experience of reading disorientation to make the the sort of the academic experience quite suffocating and quite paralyzing i think particularly mm -hmm. for for people of color yeah oh yeah yeah that was something that i think i drew from I guess all parts of my academic journey, you know, not just when I was in Paris, but um, throughout any time I sort of had an institutional experience. Mm -hmm. I think this has been uh, very true from, you know, when I was growing up, going to high school and then uh, even doing my MFA program at NYU mm -hmm. and speaking to a lot of other um, students and, and writers of color who 
we were all sharing in these similar experiences of, you know, being, having, having these really demoralizing and isolating experiences. But mm -hmm. what's funny is the institution itself would be like, we're pro diversity and inclusion and, mm -hmm. You know, on our web page is a picture of just all just how diverse we are. Uh -huh. um, and so you feel gaslit constantly in that no one around me is admitting to harming me. In mm. fact, they're constantly patting themselves on the back for, you know, we're we're a liberal bastion. Um, mm. And in reality, that's not the truth. And so. I wanted to show that that feeling, that disconnect and that surreal, um, yeah, disconnect of why, why does my experience feel like it's not being reflected back to me by everyone around me? Am I losing my mind? Mm -hmm. And the truth is, no, you're not. <laughs> These systems are <laughs> built so that you, you're not meant to question it and you're supposed to just accept things as they are. Mm -hmm. Just as a quick aside and sort of as with the caveat that I know you're not sort of presenting yourself as sort of an expert on the university systems in, in different countries. But one thing that's talked about a lot in France at the moment, uh, particularly, uh, as you well know, like in France, the discussions around around race are sort of are very different traditionally to how they are in the United States because of, you know, the way the, the idea of the republic is created and the way that they essentially in many contexts are not legally allowed to to talk about race or to keep data on diversity mm -hmm. because it's in some way considered anti-republican. Mm -hmm. In your two experiences of sort of working in the French system and the the American system, are they, are they sort of vastly different in the sort of systemic problems that they that they face, or are there quite a few similarities? Hmm. Mm. <laughs> I feel, yeah, I feel in both countries, you know, even outside of academia, there's obviously, yes, rampant white supremacy and racism in both countries. I think um, often the racists in America, they tend to be maybe a little more uh, honest about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you if you accuse a KKK member of, you know, you hey, I think you're a racist. I don't think any of them will argue with you. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, and I think living in France and in French academia, because you can't name that word, because that name is so mm -hmm. taboo, um, race, in just as a concept, you know, it's become a slur. Right. That's how mm -hmm. forbidden it is. Um, you there's it's so hard to have an honest conversation about it mm -hmm. because you will immediately be shut down and the french person will often say what are you talking about i can't be racist because i don't believe in race to begin with uh -huh. <laughs> and so so then there's that that feeling of being gaslit is just multiplied even stronger because you're trying to tell this person well it it doesn't matter that you think you don't believe it i'm telling mm -hmm. you in this you know, comment you just said to me that that was racist and mm -hmm. I'm the one who felt it and I'm telling you yes. how I feel. And but and then, you know, you just can get trapped in this circular conversation where they're like, what do you know? I'm 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 um, friends with X, Y, Z people. And I've heard a French person in defending themselves say like, but I love couscous. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> and you're just like, what? <laughs> like, I keep 
like you're you're trying to just divert this into proving you're a good person with quote unquote diverse friends, but mm -hmm. not addressing the harm that you know this comment just did to me. Um, so both, yeah, I, I think both the underlying beliefs and fears are are very similar, but um, in America, that's just race is so the idea of race and racism being racialized is so baked mm -hmm. into the history of the country, obviously, and, and it is in France too with colonization, but just because that language isn't there in France, mm -hmm. it was just so hard to talk honestly about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. On the subject of the kind of the language being there, um, one of the things I, I found really interesting about uh, sort of Ingrid's point of view is that sort of the position of being... Um, an Asian American in uh, the sort of the systemically racist uh, university system uh, of, the, of the United States, because as um, as uh, Ingrid sort of reflects at a moment, um, that sort of the the way that racism manifests to, for example, an African American person, is not the same as it is for for an Asian American person. So, uh, for example, she she says, you know, like people. Uh, among her lot, as she says, weren't turned down for loans and followed in stores, unable to walk through a white neighborhood without having the cops called on them. And yet they are mocked and trivialized and sort of given an illusion of power, an illusion of kind of access, but it's still sort of are still sort of excluded. And it feels like in, in a way, perhaps because of, I guess, the, the history of African-Americans, and there has been this kind of space for a language of resistance to develop uh, over the over the generations and that perhaps uh, with Asian Americans and what perhaps Ingrid is struggling with as the book goes through is this sort of sense of the sort of articulation of the the sort of the prejudices and the obstacles that Asian Americans face it's sort of it's it hasn't quite been so so sort of fleshed out in a way and therefore is maybe more difficult to understand yeah, I, all of that is very, was very intentional, right? So the creation of the model minority myth uh, was created precisely around the time where um, I get just the American government and and public in general they were trying to suggest that if you were oppressed in any way, so if you were um, poor or you faced discrimination, this was your individual fault. This was your mm. problem. And if you simply worked hard enough to quote unquote, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, your mm. life would be great and you would be a millionaire. Right? Right. <laughs> and they kept using Asian Americans as this prop in, in to, to basically push this um, message of propaganda, right? Mm -hmm. Because if America can make you believe this myth, this lie of the American dream that anyone can be anything if you just work hard enough, they don't have to confront, you know, 200 or more than 200 years of oppression, slavery, Jim mm -hmm. Crow, um, redlining, uh, voter suppression, mm -hmm. you know, all the things that make up systemic uh, and, and institutional oppression, they don't have to address it. Mm -hmm. They don't have to address how being a descendant of a slave, yes, that does affect your life up until the present day. Right. So um, it, 
I think why the language was so hard for Asian Americans is it was purposely kept away from them. And mm -hmm. I think for a lot of um, immigrants from Asia coming to the U.S., they bought into this dream, right? Because they're also escaping often uh, poverty and uh terrifying governments. Mm -hmm. And so latching on to this belief, I think, was a way of survival. But what is really heartbreaking is that it came at the cost of solidarity between right. Asians and, and um, Black Americans and, you know, other minorities. And the U.S., I mean, they were really terrified of this solidarity because they, mm -hmm. they realized, oh, no, they could sort of realize what we're up to and, and overpower us. So they really used Asian Americans to um, create these divides. And what is sad is I think that in, in a lot of pockets of Asian American uh, society, some have completely swallowed this and, mm. um, and, and in, they themselves now push very anti-Black policies like abolishing affirmative action is a very popular one. Um, and yeah, I think it is heartbreaking that we we have this history of activism. You know, if you look for it, it does stretch back to the 60s and beyond to when the Japanese internment camps are happening. Um, it, it, it is a part of our history and it is just really heartbreaking that so much of it was erased and kept from us. And mm -hmm. I and I really hope that I think now a lot of Asian Americans are learning that, oh, we have this history mm -hmm. of activism, activism and solidarity with other yeah. groups. And we just need to find those, you know, those, those truths and um, see past the lies that have been fed to us. Yeah. And, and when we meet uh, Ingrid for the first time, that's sort of. In a, in a sense, she's kind of torn between these these two viewpoints in a way. Like she uh, she senses the kind of the sort of systemic racism of the the uh, ironically the uh, the East Asian Studies Department and uh, and the professors in that. And yet, also when for the first time she comes into contact with the POC Caucus and the members of that. And, you know, she she is confronted perhaps directly for the first time with the kind of the rhetoric of um, sort of overcoming white supremacy. She of it, she has this almost kind of visceral reaction against it in a way. Yeah, I thought that was very real. This feeling of when, you know, they that meme or I don't even know if it's a meme, that phrase when you say, oh, I feel attacked when something mm -hmm. is too true to your right. experience and, and you don't you basically don't like looking at yourself in the mirror in that moment right the, this is me and i don't like what i see mm -hmm. so i think uh this was behavior that i think i had recognized a little in myself and in online groups um i was in where asian americans of all different uh political beliefs and some were activists some were definitely not activists and you would see um in our community, people having these tough discussions. And a lot of times, if you were quote unquote called out, your first uh, reaction was always one of, of defensiveness, right? Mm. So yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah. Asian Americans with a, yeah, were called out for something they would 
you would see them sort of bristle and defend themselves and maybe shut down. And because the you, anyone who I think has suffered some form of oppression, they don't want to see themselves as capable of oppressing others, right? right? It, it now messes with your idea of self. Mm -hmm. If you've built up a life believing I'm, I'm the only victim in the world. Um, I, so how could I possibly hurt? others and so i think that's where the defense comes from and i think ingrid mm -hmm. of course wants to believe she's a good person and she has a very sort of uh superficial understanding of what that might mean like she lists off in the beginning you know i recycle i want to donate money to an <laughs> impoverished uh war-torn country <laughs> and uh, instead of um recognizing that yeah that's it when one is called out it's not an attack on character. And this is mm -hmm. what people often fail to understand. We take it as a personal attack. Instead, I think it is always an act of generosity and care because mm -hmm. if, you know, the person calling you out didn't care, it would be like, go, go on your merry way and continue to offend people mm -hmm. and isolate yourself. What do I care? <laughs> but if yeah, you take yeah, yeah. the time to try and and pull in this person so you don't lose them completely, you know, I think it is this, um, comes from a space of, yeah, generosity. So Ingrid doesn't get that. And, and so her defense <laughs> is to be very defensive and to try to, you know, when the world, when everything you know about the world is, seems to be crumbling and changing in front of your eyes, mm -hmm. you latch on to the old one because change right. is really terrifying for most people. And so for Ingrid, uh, why she's so resistant to the POC caucus is I think she mm. fears instability and she just wants to cling on to this is what makes sense mm. in my 30 years of existence. And so I will continue to hold on to them until, you know, yes. it becomes impossible and, and things are so that when the truth is so horrific, she can't look away. Right. She finally uh. realizes, Oh, I, I have to look at these ugly parts of the world and myself that mm -hmm. I never wanted to. And we do see as the as the novel goes on, it's sort of it is a sort of a slow, I guess, deconstruction and reconstruction of the her kind of inner intellectual mechanics, I guess, in a way like this is not there's not a sort of a, a light bulb moment in a sense, but a kind of a succession of sort of experiences, both internal and external which um yeah which reconfigure her in some way yeah absolutely that's such a good way of putting it adam yeah i think it is it's i didn't want to make it easy for her because i think it's mm. never easy and she goes through a lot of things in one year just one academic yes. year and <laughs> i and that's definitely a sped up version i think in reality the sort of untangling all these beliefs you had and being willing to turn a critical eye onto yourself, mm. this takes years of work. So Ingrid sort of, I mean, as you know, what happened, what she discovers is so mm -hmm. shocking and horrifying that it, it just speeds everything yeah. up. It's kind of a catalyst. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. mm -hmm. um, on, on that subject, um, and again, I'm because I don't want to give anything away, I'm going to tread very carefully as I, as I talk about this. But like, I guess one of the sort of overarching themes of the book we might say is this kind of becoming somebody else okay mm -hmm. and that might be sort of 
you know, Ingrid changing. Um, that might be, uh, so Stephen, Ingrid's partner, uh, sort of inhabiting the voice of this uh, female Japanese writer. Uh, or it might be some other things, which is to say, I'm not going to specifically <laughs> specifically talk about. Um, earlier, you mentioned the um, the American dream. And particularly the first part of it you mentioned is like, you can be anything. And that does seem to be something that is hardwired into um, into the American psyche. And I think probably because of sort of American cultural hegemony of the last few decades has sort of spread uh, across the world, this idea of sort of, you can be anything. And yet, one of the sort of discussions which um, has been going on you know, quite a lot in the book world of late, the, the artistic world, and also sort of is quite central to um, to disorientation is, I guess, what are the limits to um, to what you can become? Um, as I say, I, I, I don't know if I've been clear because I don't want to talk too much about <laughs> about what actually happens in the plot, but. Um, I guess this idea of appropriation, appropriation mm-hmm. of a voice, appropriation of a culture. Um, mm-hmm. When you decided that this sort of subject had to be um, had to be sort of central to to disorientation, was it quite a sort of a, I guess a sort of an intimidating debate to uh, to launch yourself into? I mean, particularly as a writer and a writer of of fiction. Oh yeah, I I, th- I think I um I think I was nervous. Maybe as the reality of the book started to become well real, but mm-hmm. when you're just in your room writing alone and you have no idea if anyone will ever read this, the idea of publication, you know, wasn't um, yet on the horizon. I think I then I wasn't afraid. Then I was just uh-huh. it was me enacting my own little vengeance and uh, in my room because I couldn't, you know, I I couldn't get justice or accountability in the real world. And Mm -hmm. so the only place I felt I could even get a glimpse of it um, to sort of wet out this rage I had and and try to do something productive with it was to, to write it. And so I definitely was really angry about a lot of different things. And so, for example, I don't think this is this is um, a spoiler, but so many famous books and mm-hmm. films about Asia were not written by Asian people. Mm-hmm. You know, so let's take like Shogun, um, right. Memoirs of a Geisha, Madame Butterfly, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. two hundred you know years old, and yet that informed directly how Asian women are perceived. Um, and, and it won't go away, you know, it just keeps being reborn as Miss mm-hmm. Saigon. And I always joke, like, they won't let it die. Next, it's going to be Miss something set on Mars. And mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it, it just this narrative, this, these ideas that directly affected my life in that I'm perceived in a certain way, right? Oh, mm-hmm. Asian women are um, seen as submissive, weak, non-threatening, right docile um and 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 that's just just some of i I think there are many worse stereotypes Mm -hmm. um but you see how that affects you know how someone would move through the world when Mm -hmm. whether it's you walking down a dark street at night 
and someone sees you and and they believe that you are inherently weak and non-threatening, mm. right? Or it also transfers to relationships. Um, and Ingrid is in a very unequal relationship. And mm. part of it is because her, her partner just believes something about her is inherently, right, uh, obedient, docile. Mm. And I think I just had so much rage <laughs> that uh-huh. <laughs> why were these stories that dictated my life, the lives of mm-hmm. so many people I care about, um, why were they, mo- you know, these were all white men mostly, mm-hmm. by and large, uh, you know, some yeah. white women scattered in there. But, yeah, um, yeah. And so this idea of who can write what, who owns what, Mm-hmm. was really at the forefront of my mind where I would, in my opinion, it was, you know, not you, not definitely uh-huh. not you because <laughs> you don't have stakes, right? Uh-huh. And there's a moment in the novel at the end where Ingrid thinks, you know, these people got to basically churn out a day's worth of harm and walk mm-hmm. away mm-hmm. and go back to their lives where they were completely untouched by it, where they didn't have to fear walking down mm-hmm. the street at night and how someone might see them. To them, this is just, it's a its a hobby, but it's my yeah. life there that uh-huh. is at stake, you know? And so to me, I think some, some of the devil's advocate people will be like, well, so, you know, you're writing um, a character who's Korean American and you're not Korean American. So mm-hmm. are you allowed to do it? You're, you're not 29 years old, but you wrote a character who's 29. Are you not? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> These are just empty sort of, you know, arguments, try to say, of course, fiction, we never write just complete, you know, I I think it was actually Hari Kanjuru one time who said, it would be absurd if, you know, every character I wrote was, um, you know, half Indian, half British white, and they were all the same age, and they were all the same gender. And that's not how fiction works, right? But I think well, what... I can imagine Hurry making an interesting novel out of that. In fairness, <laughs> yeah, that would act, that would be pretty, <laughs> I think, absurd and 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 surreal in a great way. Um, but yeah, I think what we need to talk about are ethics, and this mm-hmm. is something that fiction has, by and large, wanted to avoid, right? To see mm-hmm. themselves as above ethics. But um, I read something that that really encapsulated how I feel. And it's a quote, I can't remember who said the quote, but it's in Craft in the Real World by Matthew Salaces. It's a brilliant Mm. book that just overturns everything we know about teaching writing and teaching fiction. And the quote is, all art can injure or cure. Mm. And I thought this this is true. And so many of the books and movies I just named, they injure obviously Mm -hmm. right there's actually statistical proof that asian women suffer higher rates of domestic abuse um and sexual assault so this this Mm -hmm. is the 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 proof is there right this has injured us and um i think it's time we really ask when someone is creating you know which one are they doing Mm -hmm. and to stop sort of trying to cut off fiction from actions in the world, mm-hmm. right? Because if you murder someone in the real world, your action, that action can't be divorced from ethics. But how come writers think their actions are somehow not connected to ethics in mm-hmm. the world? It's like, no, you are a person in the real world. Yeah. So 
there are repercussions for what you put in this, you know, in your art. Anyway, sorry, Adam, I've gone on for a long time. No, 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 no. It's really interesting. And I just want to, I just want to press on one point though, because I'm curious about from your sort of perspective as an artist as well, which is, I think, because obviously that's sort of, um, I guess from a kind of a reader or publisher point of view, the kind of the ethical consideration is, is very strong, but I'd, I'd be interested to know, yeah, it's your sort of role as an artist. Do you have this sort of slightly conflictual relationship where you, I suppose, want to sort of allow yourself the complete freedom should you should you wish at some point to sort of inhabit other uh, other minds, other other cultures, other uh, other genders, other 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 species, or is mm-hmm. there kind of um, do you think there's even something sort of vaguely unethical about that urge with the mm. artist, if that makes sense? I mean, I the thing is, I feel very free when I write. Mm-hmm. And I think even though I write with this very clear purpose, I think I've now understood that as, uh, you know, former activist and organizer, well, I try to be, but, you know... <laughs> Lately, it's been, things have been very hectic, but I realize I can't separate that from my art. That's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's something that drives me to create. I feel mm-hmm. extremely motivated by the idea of trying to enact some change, even if it's so, you know, small. And not mm-hmm. every person, every artist is motivated by different things, but I realize sure. that for me. So even though I write feeling motivated by this I've never felt unfree because I simply don't feel the urge for example Mm. to write let's say a first person uh, narrative about a young black American boy Mm. that this is actually has been done by a few white writers and Mm -hmm. one I think was very recent and they try to write in like a black American vernacular English and it was just horrific and (laughs) it it just read like yeah this awful sort of character and parody of uh, culture but um, I think because I I just literally don't have that urge (laughs) that it's Mm -hmm. I never feel in conflict with it so I think what's interesting is when a writer is sort of defending like well I really feel that I, you know, let's say a 50-year-old white man should be telling this tale of a young black boy (laughs) from the inner cities of Chicago. It's just like, what is, this is saying something about you as a person. Why don't we Mm. unpack that? This isn't actually about art. This is, this conversation isn't actually about quote-unquote freedom of speech. That's saying something about you because Mm. I and so many other marginalized writers like Asian writers I've I've talked to like none of us feel this urge right we're yeah. very happy and eager to read um work from black authors and so I I feel like when this question comes up when a white writer is sort of like I I feel so trapped I can't write about anything I'm like mm-hmm. this is saying something about you and a certain right. entitlement and privilege and sort of a um I'm going to sound like Vivian Vo, you know, colonizing <laughs> curiosity or, or or almost it becomes a sort of creepy in wanting to inhabit, wanting to mm. take control that I think is maybe a product of if you, you know, have um, 
have been raised with this idea of being exceptional, right? Whereas uh-huh. I think for other writers, like it, the desire doesn't even come to me. And so I think the the interesting question is they really got to unpack, why do you have this desire to begin with? And also, I guess, being raised with the belief that you have access to all spaces and all uh, kind of, uh, yeah, any, anywhere you want to go is open to you, I guess, is um, right. It's something to, <laughs> yeah, to, to, to question, to mm-hmm. question in itself. Um, kind of connected to this idea is this um, something which comes up quite a lot in the in in the book as well is this idea of translation so as we said mm-hmm. so Stephen um Ingrid's partner fiance is a translator um and so he translates from uh he's translating a particular um book called, called Pink Salon which is a sort of um I guess it's it's it's, it's presented as non-fiction mm-hmm. with it's at least the way that Stephen is translating it, it and the sort of snippets that we get comes across a sort of, I guess, sort of Japanese erotica mm-hmm. almost. Um, and I think there's there's some really sort of um, interesting discussions as well in that sense, in, in, in that direction of sort of what, um, what does translation do both to the uh, the text that is being that be that is being considered, and also the um, the person who is who is translating it, and their sort of relation with both the text and um, and with the author. Um, now I'm curious because obviously I you know disorientation has been such a hit. I have no doubt that it will be it will find its way into other languages. Maybe it's already in the process of being uh, of being translated. Um, and I'm just curious, after that sort of having spent so much time sort of reflecting about that process, is that something which you will feel as a writer, something you want to be implicated in if there is, say, a uh, a, a Spanish language version of disorientation or a, a Chinese version or, you know, or in any, in any other language? Will you feel in some way that the experience of writing about it will mean that it, you'll sort of you'd approach it differently than you might have done before? Mm-hmm. Uh, you mean, would I would I want to sort of be a part of the translation process or see what was being Yeah, cha- or even sort of have have a, a sort of an opinion about who might translate it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I have thought about I mean, <laughs> I think how it usually goes down is a writer has very little say. Um, That's true. <laughs> but I think... I th- I think there's what I w- wanted to explore with Stephen's character is that there is a sort of emotional invisible connection when the te- when the language that you're working with is not just something you started learning you know at age eighteen and at university but it's the language that you grew up with that your parents mm. speak that your grandparents speak that that language itself carries uh, an emotional weight and history um, mm. when it's one of your mother tongues, even if, if it was lost and you, you also had to learn it as an adult. Um, so I think to me, there is an extra layer of meaning. If, for example, the book was translated into Mandarin by someone who is um either Taiwanese or Taiwanese American, that Mm -hmm. would just be more meaningful to me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think these things, 
um, in the translation world, I think they, they, they're starting to come up, but I think for mm. a long time, this was a taboo discussion. And right. it was uh, the question of the translator's identity was really considered, you know, not, not of our concern. But mm. I think what I've am fascinated by is how none of us are these uh, transparent eyeballs, right? None of us really right. are just window panes where experience can pass through you. It passes through you as a being who's been informed by however many years you've been alive on the planet, where you were raised, what your parents are like, what media you grew up watching, your native language, um, mm -hmm. your personal experiences, all of that informs how we interpret something, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think um, talking about translation no longer is just an objective, you know, A equals A, B equals B, but as a creation itself, that is uh, filtered through or affected by the translator's identity and mm -hmm. background. I think this is this is something that we're just starting to talk about now. And I see yeah. more, you know, for example, like Asian American translators wanting to kind of reclaim a space where if you look mm -hmm. at traditionally, um, for many, many years, Asian authors were never translated by other Asian authors. It, it's uh -huh. just this is this is quite, I would say, recent. Um yeah, so those are the thoughts I've I've mm. had, and um, no, there's no, yeah, a translation of disorientation hasn't happened yet, as far as I know. So I don't know how all this will go down or how I'll feel. I suppose when it does, yeah. but I'll I'll let you know. <laughs> it's it's a really interesting point as well. I think like I've seen a few. Um... Well, sometimes called translation battles, where these events where people have been given the same page from a book to translate, and then they, you get so these were kind of English to French, the ones I saw, and and then you see the differences in the translations and in the choices that the translators made, and it's always really staggering how different mm -hmm. the two translations are generally, and that's without taking into consideration any sort of potential sort of cultural sensitivities or insensitivities that might um that might come into play just in a sort of pure choice you know mm. language choice and sort of sentence level uh the translations can be so different so there must be a certain uh like this extra level of sort of i guess understanding that uh that can be can brought to a text or can text or can be can lack for, uh, be lacking from a text mm -hmm. um, with translation. I'd like we're almost out of time, but I don't want to finish our conversation without talking about Ingrid's parents, um, because it's sort of like so the book is called Disorientation and it is it often quite a kind of vertiginous read. So, you know, we are it's quite dizzying for readers. You know, the plot is kind of, as I say, sort of spiraling, twisting here and there and taking on this great ride. Ingrid's mental, emotional journey is also quite sort of <laughs> quite turbulent, quite up and down. And also just the kind of the I guess the sort of systemic perversions that are sort of shaping her world make the title, I think, a very appropriate one. But there are these moments when she's with her parents, which it's so, I guess, um, I'm trying to think of the word. They're so, so sort of calmly presented and they feel like these little kind of 
oases mm. in um, in Ingrid's life. Um, and I'm just curious in the sort of uh, sort of in the writing process for you, uh, because as readers, they really feel like the moments where Ingrid kind of gets anchored a little bit, even though her relationship with her parents is by no means simple. You know, it's quite it's quite it has its own complexities. There's still in some way these things that, which she can kind of attach onto and kind of root herself to. And I'm curious in the writing, was that how it how it felt to you? Was there kind of were these little moments almost of kind of of calm <laughs> when you were when you were writing those scenes? Well, I'm so glad that um, it came across that way. And I really like the way you framed it as, yeah, little oases and moments of calm for Ingrid, because it's true in the most of the book, she's just in turmoil all the time, right? <laughs> um, and yeah, and I think towards the end when she spends more time with her family, that's where she seems to really calm down and have space for herself. But when I was writing it, you know what's interesting is I think in first drafts, her parents were barely visible. I mean, mm. I think so. I wrote three different versions um, from scratch with different, a, a lot of different plot lines and characters. Um, but I remember the very first version, there's just one scene with them, I believe. Mm. And then maybe at the end, they, they sort of sh show up um, at, at a dinner, but very uh, minimal. Mm -hmm. They weren't a big part of the story or Ingrid's uh, life. And then in this version, when I was getting feedback from beta readers um, mm -hmm. and my agents, they really wanted to see more of this relationship. Uh -huh. And I, I think I was sort of surprised by that, I guess, because in my mind, Ingrid is dealing so much with uh, other relationships right her yeah, yeah, with yeah. Steven and and of course with um like her friendship with Eunice and and quote-unquote rivalry with Vivian mm. that the one with the parents I I didn't realize was important and I think I was actually reluctant in some ways because I had a sort of uh this vision of when Asian Americans write about family that it would it, that it would just be stereotypical or something mm -hmm. you know I think I just w had to unpack mm -hmm. sort of, yeah. uh, why I had that feeling or assumption I mean probably because in 10th grade I had to read Joy Luck Club and um, <laughs> my teacher kept stopping the class to ask me you know is is this true about Right. Chinese American. <laughs> and <laughs> you know when you're 15 it's so horrifying and mm -hmm. you're like don't don't look at me <laughs> But you have like 30, <laughs> 30 eyes looking at you. And um, so I think I just had these negative associations, maybe mm. with what it, how do you write about an Asian American family dynamic in a way that is, doesn't feel like it's a stereotype. And it's not, in a way, it's not our fault that it became a stereotype. I don't know. It's, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. But um, I think that's why I was resistant. But then I really tried to find how is their relationship specific and um, to just hone in on that specificity so that it it was real in that sense. Yeah, I don't know if I'm if I'm <laughs> totally making sense, but um, it was something I resisted. But now mm -hmm. I realize it was really important 
yeah, for Ingrid yeah, yeah. to look at her childhood, especially, and her relationship to being Taiwanese in um, relation to her parents, because that, of course, mm-hmm. is her closest tie to Taiwan. But mm-hmm. she really tried to sever that. And so I think like a lot of readers astutely pointed out, this is a huge part of of herself and her journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it just is saying something about me that I didn't want to <laughs> look at it, you know. Well, that's the thing. I think uh, often in the, the process of writing novels, we get to know a lot about ourselves as well as. Oh my <laughs> well God! Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, how can is novel writing anything else than a really long therapy <laughs> session? Or something? no, don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love to hear that, knowing that I've read Adam's novel. Um, oh, that's which... a conversation for another time. <laughs> Which which I um, love is, and is so brilliant. I just need to plug that for readers. <laughs> oh, that's, that's very sweet of you. Um, well, look, that is all we've got time for. Look, Disorientation is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company, both the US and the UK editions mm-hmm. um, from our bricks and mortar store, from our online shop as well. Or you can get it, of course, from your local independent bookstore, wherever wherever you are in the world. Uh, Elaine, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you uh, today. Uh, come and see us in Paris soon. And thank you for, for coming on the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you so much, Adam. This was such a joy. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>